We've been away from James for a month. What with Messiah, an Advent sermon from Revelation 12, and the Sunday School Christmas program. But it isn't necessary to review before proceeding, as it so often is when we take up a text again after an interruption. In those cases, the context is essential to right understanding, but not so much in wisdom literature. Just as you don't need to remember which two Proverbs preceded the one you are now considering, so you don't need to consider what James has just said in order to consider what he says next. James's wisdom literature, the New Testament's only specimen of the art, and its teaching is not obviously sequential in the way most biblical literature is. The paragraph we are about to read, so far as any scholar can tell, might have been placed anywhere in the letter. James knew why he put things in the order he did, but we do not. I'm going to comment extensively on the text as we read it, because it is a passage of immense importance and, alas, of long-standing controversy. It's necessary, in other words, that we take care to understand what James is actually saying. All the more because there have been so many disagreements about what James is actually saying, even among Protestant evangelical Christians. So we begin at verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, the viewpoint that James is describing in the history of Christian theology bears the name antinomianism. Anti, against, nomos, the law. Against the law-ism. Actually, it means anti-having to obey the law-ism. Someone who says that he has faith is a professing Christian. He says he has faith, and in this context, in the book of James, that obviously means faith in Jesus Christ. But he's not living for Jesus. He's not keeping the Lord's commandments. He's not performing the good works that Paul said Jesus died in order to make us zealous to perform. James will use several examples to describe the good works he means, and together they amount to a description of obedience to any and all the commandments of God. Actually, to be more precise, an antinomian may be keeping the commandments of God and doing many good works, but he doesn't think he absolutely has to. Many antinomians in history have actually been earnest and faithful Christians who have lived exemplary lives, complicating the picture somewhat. Life and theology are often messy. If all antinomians lived disreputable lives, it would be much easier to describe the difference that antinomianism makes. See that bad person over there? He's an antinomian. You don't want to be that. Antinomianism in all its forms is the view that saving faith in Jesus can exist without obedience to him. Justification can occur without sanctification. Forgiveness can be obtained from God 
without the transformation of our lives. Antinomians typically maintain that here in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, we're being taught only that professing Christians who do not live the Christian life will lose greater measures of God's blessing, not that they will not be saved at all. Antinomian views have appeared and reappeared throughout Christian history and have reappeared in our own time. New scholarship on the Westminster Assembly, the theological body that in the mid-17th century produced our Westminster Confession of Faith, that new scholarship argues that the greatest concern looming over the assembly as it prepared the confession was not Roman Catholicism, was not Arminianism, it was antinomianism. Some of you will remember the flap in the 1980s between the popular Reformed Baptist preacher John MacArthur and the Dallas Seminary professor Zane Hodges. MacArthur attacking the antinomianism then current in many Arminian Baptist circles in his book, The Gospel of Jesus, and Hodges defending it in his book, Absolutely Free. There's been more of, than a whiff of antinomianism in Reformed and Presbyterian circles over the last 20 or 30 years. The idea that Christ has so fulfilled the law on our behalf that we are under no absolute necessity to keep it ourselves has understandably enough always had an attraction for believers. No serious antinomian would describe his viewpoint in such a cavalier way but the wit's famous lines, freed from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I want and still have remission, comes perilously close to identifying the temptation that antinomianism has always had for Christian people through the ages. I won't take more time to demonstrate that fact to you, but I hope I've said enough to remind you that what James is discussing in these verses is not some abstract issue, but something of timeless relevance and importance. You and I are, every day, tempted to make the very mistake, the error that James is warning against here. Antinomianism is, as a matter of fact, disproved in a hundred different ways in the teaching of the Word of God. You know very well that Jesus threatened with rejection from heaven those who did not do the will of his Father in heaven. It was Jesus who said that if we loved him, we would keep his commandments. And it was Paul who said that there was a curse on everyone who did not love the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't a book of the Bible that doesn't impress on us the necessity of our obeying the commandments of God if we are to be numbered among his people. Here James begins with that very question. Can faith that is not accompanied by works, he means by works, works of obedience to God's commandments, can that faith save anyone? The question is rhetorical and the answer is, of course, no, it cannot. Zane Hodges, as a consistent antinomian, cannot allow James to be talking about salvation from sin and death here. He argues rather that the word save 
in James 2, 14 and following must mean only deliverance from some earthly trial, a meaning the word admittedly has in chapter 5, verse 15, but not at all the likely meaning of the word here, as is indicated not only by the fact that James' subject here is justification or righteousness before God, but by the use of the word elsewhere in the letter, as in chapter 1, verse 21, where the reference is to the salvation of the soul, chapter 4, verse 12, where the reference is to God our Savior from judgment, chapter 5, verse 20, where again the reference is to the salvation of the soul. The faith that cannot save, James says, is precisely that faith that is not accompanied or is without good works. That's the obvious implication of James' words. If someone says he has faith, that is, the man is claiming to have faith, but the faith he's talking about, because it is without works, is not true faith at all. It's not the genuine article. It's not the real thing. Faith without works is a spurious faith. The man claiming to have faith, but such a faith that does not have works, is, is saying, is admitting unwittingly that he has no faith at all. For real faith unites a man so with Christ that his thoughts and his actions come under the control of his spirit. Now, Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The Greek term translated naked here in verse 17 in some translations, is translated poorly clothed here in uh, the ESV because it is used elsewhere in the New Testament uh, to describe someone who is only inadequately or partially clothed. The fact that this is the second time James uses an illustration of the mistreatment of the poor and needy, he did that in verses 2 and 3 earlier in chapter 2, suggests he knew this was a real problem in these early Christian communities to whom he is addressing his letter. Now, the illustration he uses is clear enough, but precisely how does it relate to a dead faith? Well, the point seems to be that once again, the words are pious, but they're not backed up by behavior that demonstrates their sincerity. Go in peace suggests a desire for, even a prayer, for God's blessing. And be warmed and filled suggests a hope that God will make up their obvious needs. The believer is talking like a Christian, but he isn't acting like one. As one commentator beautifully put it, faith has in itself, as an integral element in its composition, the power and the desire to meet the infinite pathos of human life with something of the infinite pity 
which God has shown to man in Jesus Christ. The problem with this claimed faith, the faith that talks but doesn't act, is that faith by itself is a faith that isn't faith. Faith that is without works is not faith at all. And that leads to the often repeated adage in Protestant theology, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And James is describing a faith that is alone, a faith that is by itself. True faith, authentic faith, will be, must be, accompanied by works. In his introduction to Romans, Luther stated that saving faith is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. As you know, ancient Greek writing did not employ quotation marks. So there is a long-standing debate about what the next few or the few next verses mean, in part because one has to decide where the quotation marks go. I'm not going to bore you with the details except to say that there are good reasons to favor the ESV's decision to put them where they have. The point seems to be that some hypothetical opponent of James's viewpoint is asserting that one person may choose faith, another person may choose works. Faith and works are separate things. And you need to have one or the other, but you don't have to have both. There's something like the various gifts that Paul says are distributed by the Holy Spirit among the people of God. And James' reply, which is the rest of verse 18, amounts to his rejection of that view. There can be no dichotomy between faith and works, he says, and so he challenges the imaginary objector to produce, if he can, an example of real faith that does not express itself in obedience and service. No, says James, faith and works are always found together. Two sides of the same coin, as it were. He himself would have no difficulty demonstrating his faith from his life. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, James is still addressing the imaginary objector who thinks he can have true faith without obedience and without a spirit of Christian service. So James proceeds, as a good arguer does, 
to the reductio ad absurdum of the objector's argument and position. A faith without deeds amounts to merely verbal or intellectual agreement. It doesn't change anybody's way of life. But the demons have that kind of faith. They're certainly not saved. You believe there is but one God. Good. But so do the demons. It's a good thing to have an accurate theology, but it doesn't matter if the theology doesn't penetrate to the motives and the commitments of one's life. We learn in the Gospels, as you remember, that the demons knew very well that Jesus was the Messiah. Far better than anybody else in the country did at the time. They even knew he was the Lord, capital L. Genuinely evil persons and beings can know the right things about God, but such knowledge is hardly saving faith. The demons are the perfect illustration of the poverty of faith conceived as merely verbal profession in and of itself. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For a Christian, of course, the bottom line is the teaching of the Bible. So James now proceeds to demonstrate from Holy Scripture that true faith is always a working faith. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That statement here in verse 21 together with its parallel in verse 24 has been the cause of all the controversy. Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. Here James says he was justified by works. Now it's worth remembering that if James were the first book of the New Testament to be written, which seems very likely, perhaps in the mid-40s of the first century, he wrote before Paul had written his polemic against works righteousness in Galatians, before perhaps the whole problem of works righteousness had, had surfaced in the new Christian church. He wrote before the Synod of Jerusalem had met to discuss that very issue, how obedience fits into the justification of sinners. About that synod, you remember we read in Acts chapter 15. So James is hardly taking issue with the Apostle Paul. He would not, at this point, have known how Paul would later frame the issue or how he would use the same words, the same terms that James is using here. For example, James could be using the word justify in a very different sense than Paul would later use it in Galatians and Romans. The word can be used, and it is used in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospels, to mean to demonstrate, to be right, to vindicate, or to prove valid. That is the integrity, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, 19, we read, wisdom is justified by her actions. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. That is, the integrity or the value of wisdom is demonstrated by the actions that flow from it. Many have thought this to be the simplest solution 
to the problem of any apparent contradiction between James and Paul. They're using the word justify in two very different ways, both of which ways are found elsewhere in the New Testament. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. I rarely corrected a translation uh, in the ESV, but what James wrote literally is, you see that faith was working together with his works. Again, the point is that the works of a believer are the works that faith itself originates. They don't come from nowhere, these acts of obedience in a Christian's life. They stem from faith. Faith achieves its goal when a believer does what God commands him or her to do. In any case, his point, the point with which he concludes our verse 22, is that faith is completed by works. The works of love and obedience that Christians perform are the activity of a genuine faith. In other words, he's saying here, true faith is not by itself, as he described false faith to be in verse 17. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now, however one approaches the problem of reconciling James and Paul, James certainly makes clear here that he's not denying the centrality of faith. Rather, he's simply pointing out what he has already said, namely that true faith will invariably, in the nature of the case, be a working faith. And that's proved to have been the case with Abraham. He cites the same verse from Genesis 15 that Paul will cite to make his point that justification is by faith and not by works. The works, of course, in Paul's polemic, are the works of the law performed by someone who still imagines that he can earn his righteousness with God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James has told us throughout the section what he means by faith alone. A faith that is by itself, a faith that is alone, he has argued, is a bogus faith. It's a sham faith. It's a sham precisely because a true and living faith is not alone. It produces a changed life and godliness and obedience. Faith alone in verse 24 manifestly does not mean the same thing that faith alone means in the polemic writing of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 and 4 and Romans 3 through 5. So faith alone does not mean a true and living faith in Christ, but a faith that doesn't happen to produce obedience and Christian living. The phrase faith alone in James means a faith that is mere pretense, an imitation of the real thing. Remember, Paul himself wrote that a faith must be a working faith. Galatians 5.5 said that what matters is faith working through love. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, without going into all the detail, let me just tell you there are two traditional ways to harmonize the statements of James and Paul. And I'll be happy to let you choose between them. One, as I mentioned earlier, is to take James to mean justified by works in verses 21 and 24, that faith is proved genuine. It is validated. It is authenticated as the real deal by the works that it produces in our lives. Since true faith always produces an obedient faith or an obedient life, one can know he has faith by arguing back from his way of life to its source or its origin in his faith or her faith in Christ. The other way to harmonize James and Paul is to accept that both of them are using the term to justify in the same sense of being declared righteous before God, your sins being forgiven, But Paul is referring to the initial declaration of a sinner's forgiveness before God, his right standing before God as a Christian when he becomes a Christian, while James is referring to the ultimate verdict of innocence pronounced at the Last Judgment that we know from many texts in the New Testament is a verdict based on the works that true faith produces in a Christian's life. I prefer the first explanation myself, but whether that is James' meaning here, the second is likewise and is obviously a teaching of Jesus and his apostles. In either case, both writers see the works of obedience, the the works (coughs) of Christian service, excuse me, (coughs) as the proof, the evidence, and the validation of true and living faith because (coughs) they are the life that faith inevitably produces in the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. James then concludes his argument with a final illustration and a concluding summary statement reiterating the point he has made throughout. As with Abraham, the great hero of Jewish history, so with Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, that is, whether we take our examples from the top or from the bottom, faith is always proved by its deeds. The others in Jericho knew that God was with Israel, that he had performed miracles on her, on her behalf. They too were trembling in fear, but it didn't produce in them any action consistent with that understanding, with that faith. In Rahab's case, it led her to take risks on behalf of God's people to help them in need and to bank her hope of survival and the survival of her family on her acknowledgement of the one true God. And the final summary returns to the original point. We're talking about true and living faith and what that actually is. It is a disposition of confidence in God that invariably produces good works. As the body without the spirit or soul is dead, so faith without works is the equivalent 
of a corpse. Or as the early Reformed theologian Caspar Olevianus put it, it is rather difficult to convince someone that a stone is alive when it remains absolutely motionless. Or that a drunk is sober when he is staggering from wall to wall. Thus far the word of God. James' point, I hope you see, is clear and emphatic. Real faith, genuine faith, is invariably, in its very nature and character, a working faith. It produces obedience. It produces a life of service to God and others. It expresses itself in these works, and it is vindicated and validated by them. Any faith, therefore, that fails to give birth to a real Christian life is a sham and will not bring a sinner peace with God. What you need is real faith in Jesus Christ, and real faith is always a working faith. Paul says the same thing, as did Jesus before him, as did the prophets before them all. And generally, this has not been only the teaching of the Reformed Church, but of the Protestant Church in general, and to some degree of the Christian Church universally. Now, before we attend to James' emphatic declaration that faith must and will work, let me at least remind you again that James is as ardent an advocate of justification by faith as any other author of the New Testament. He begins in chapter 1, verse 3, talking about the testing of our faith. He reminds us that we must ask in faith if we hope to receive anything from God. He says that in chapter 1, verse 6. He says it again in chapter 5, verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 1, he speaks of holding faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, of those who are poor by the standards of this world, but are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Faith throughout James is the primary thing. It's the hallmark of the Christian. The irreplaceable priority. Indeed, even throughout the section we have just read, the whole question is a question about faith. We want to know what true faith is. If it's so important, if it's so decisive, if it's the thing that matters most, we need to know how to distinguish it from its counterfeits. Further, there's no doubt that the way James introduces the issue in verse 14, can that faith save him, is intentionally provocative. He's arresting his reader's attention, and as subsequent history has proved, he succeeded. Already at this early stage of Christian reflection on the gospel, it's clear to everyone that salvation was suspended on faith in Jesus Christ. We have already noted in our sermons in Acts that at the very beginning, from Pentecost onwards, the distinctive summons of Christian preaching was to believe in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the earliest Christian community is defined in Acts 2.44 simply as all who believed. And the advance of the gospel is described similarly in terms of faith. Many of those who had heard the word believed, Acts 4.4, or the full number of those who believed, Acts 4.32. There can be no question at any point in the New Testament 
that believing in, trusting our life and our future to Jesus Christ from the very beginning was understood as the means by which any person laid claim to salvation and eternal life. It is the sine qua non of the human side of salvation, the essential condition. This was the teaching of Jesus. It was the teaching of all his apostles. And that's why James' question works, why it provokes, why it arrests our attention. It would only do so in a context in which it was universally understood that forgiveness of sins and eternal life were received by faith. Nor is there anything very unlikely about the argument that James has given us here. The Judaizing element that Paul would have to deal with later, ten years or so later, or at least six or seven, uh, in Galatians and elsewhere, was a natural, we might say, inevitable, inevitable byproduct of Christianity having sprung up in the soil of first century Judaism. It was very hard, even for new Christians, fully to shed the legalistic mindset of their upbringing and of their religious training. All the more, since Christians also emphasized the importance of obedience to God's commandments. That presented a twofold temptation. And if church history teaches us anything, it is if things present a temptation, there are going to be plenty of people who fall prey to those temptations. On the one hand, some Jewish Christians were so imbued with a spirit of law-keeping that they struggled, and we know in some cases unsuccessfully, think of the Judaizers in Galatians, to rid themselves of the instinctive disposition to think of their relationship with God, faith notwithstanding, depending upon their obedience to his commandments. All 617 of them. They may well have agreed that faith was important. They might even have said that faith was decisive, but they still related their justification, their acceptance with God, to their obedience. Not as much to Christ's obedience on their behalf. But if that were so in some cases, how inevitable must it have been that some would overreact to their earlier legalism, celebrate faith in its distinction from works of obedience, and find it difficult then to distinguish between legalism on the one hand and obedience itself on the other, between a theory of works righteousness, such as the Judaizers taught, and the necessity of actual righteousness on the other, which Jesus and Paul and all the apostles so clearly taught. Paul, for example, faced this very problem with some of his converts and anticipated that very overreaction in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That is, if my acceptance with God has nothing to do with how I keep the law, but only on Christ's having kept that law for me, should I even bother to struggle, as you must, to keep the searching commands of God's law? To be frank, the fact 
that Christ fulfilled the law for those who trust in him has always threatened to undermine the conviction that Christians still have to keep the commandments of God. The logic isn't hard to follow. It's so obvious. The temptation is inevitable. If my standing with God has nothing to do with how well I keep God's commandments, if it rests entirely on how perfectly Christ has kept those commandments in my place on my behalf, then what difference does it make, really? Once I have trusted myself to Christ for salvation, what difference does it make if I keep his commandments or not? The issue is that he has kept the commandments, not that I keep them. There are a number of answers furnished uh, to, to that question, furnished in the Bible to be sure, but the answer that James gives is that the very nature of true faith is to want to keep the commandments of God, to want to serve him, to want to honor God's grace in one's life by doing what pleases God, to want to embody one's loyalty to Jesus in acts of obedience and service in his name. A man or woman who truly believes that God has been astonishingly merciful, kind and generous to him or to her, in the nature of the case, inevitably desires to show mercy to others. True faith in Jesus makes mercy a beautiful thing. To refuse to show mercy would be equivalent to admitting that God's mercy has left you unmoved, unimpressed, unchanged. But when God's mercy is seen, as it will be seen by anyone who realizes that nothing stands between him or between her and hell but that mercy, I see when mercy is seen for what it is, One will love mercy, and the person who loves mercy will, in the nature of the case, show mercy to others. By real faith in Christ, in other words, mercy, love, kindness, generosity become powers in a person's heart and life. When Jesus said that if we love him, we will keep his commandments, he was trading in that same logic. If you love somebody... And faith in the New Testament is very often simply another term for love and vice versa. If you love someone, you will want to please that person. And if you know that nothing pleases him so much as a righteous life, you will aspire to live that life yourself. That's why faith produces works. It has the aspiration to godliness in itself as an inevitable implication of that real trust, that genuine dependence, that loving acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior. In Protestant theology, faith is usually defined as having three components. The first is notitia, or knowledge. True faith operates with a knowledge of the gospel, the facts of redemption, the promises of God. Without that knowledge, faith would be empty. It would be trust in nothing. The second component of faith is a sensus, or agreement. True faith obviously agrees that the Gospels are true, that the the acts of redemption actually happened, that God, having made such promises, will keep them. 
The third component is fiducia, fiducia, or trust, the act of the will by which a person embraces Christ and his promises for himself or herself, commits himself or herself to them for his and for her peace with God and hope of heaven. It is by fiducia that anyone says and means, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, Titia and Ascensus could say the Lord is a shepherd. Fiducia says the Lord is my shepherd and means it. Faith is described, as you know, in all three of these ways repeatedly in the Bible. But what James is telling us here is the true faith, living faith, saving faith, must have all three of these components at once. Faith without knowledge is useless, though in recent days in our American politics we have come to speak of people of faith or faith-based ministries as if faith in and of itself is meaningful without regard to its knowledge or its object. In fact, faith without knowledge is nothing. And nobody has yet defined what faith would actually mean, what it would be in and of itself, as if you could have trust or confidence in nothing. Once you add knowledge to the definition of faith, it's perfectly obvious that everybody is a believer. The atheist, as surely as the evangelical Christian or the jihadist Muslim. In the same way, faith without assent or faith without assent is likewise nothing. If you don't agree with the message, then obviously you have no faith in it. No one has faith worthy of the name in what he doesn't actually himself believe. Though there is definitely a lot of that sham faith around, always has been perhaps the highest form of knowledge without assent would be wishful thinking. You find such a faith in the evangelical Christian who says he is sure that Christ is coming again next year, but he still pays his insurance premium. But while most people would accept that we have emptied faith of any meaning if it does not have knowledge and does not have agreement, there have been a great many who have thought you could have an authentic form of faith with knowledge and agreement only, without this personal commitment, this fiducia, which binds a man or woman to Christ in a living relationship of dependence, confidence, and love. No, says James, that isn't faith either. The demons have that much faith. Look at the contrast James draws between the armchair philanthropist of verse 16 and Rahab the risk taker in verse 25. Rahab risked everything because she believed in the one living and true God. She would have been executed by her fellow citizens in Jericho for having hidden the spies if they had discovered what she had done. The man who simply says pious things to the hungry and naked has risked nothing. What's the difference? The difference, James is saying, is that the one actually believes in Christ. The other doesn't really. As James concludes, it is as essential to their nature that faith and works belong together as it is that a human being should have both a body and a soul. Let's not overthink this. 
We all know from our own experience that the stronger our faith is at any moment, the more obedient and useful our lives become. We know very well that there is a direct connection between our faith and the strength of our faith and the way we live our lives day by day. And of course, when we witness a conversion, when we witness someone coming to faith in Christ, we expect to see, and then we do see, their lives changing. It's a fixed law. I often think of Amy Tracy. Some of you know her story. She was a practicing lesbian, an activist for, and later press secretary for NOW, the National Organization for Women. She was actively involved in the effort to defeat Clarence Thomas's election to the Supreme Court. She picketed and marched for abortion rights, organized rallies and protests, and as a result came to despise evangelical Christians, the principal enemy of that cause, and alas, people who often behaved in ways that were a terrible recommendation of the gospel. But Amy was a deeply unhappy person. And eventually her longings for acceptance, for purity, for meaning in life compelled her to seek God. And to make a much longer story short, here in Seattle, the Lord drew her to himself and she committed her life to him, hardly knowing what in the world she was doing. The girlfriend with whom she had been living mocked her new faith, accused her of now consorting with the kind of people that want to put gay men and women in concentration camps. And she found herself alienated from almost all the people who for for her life so far she had been counting on for support. For six months after her conversion, she did her best never to think about the social issues that had been the great meaning and purpose of her life up to that point. But one day, reading a newspaper and several stories on these controversial issues of our time, she realized that her views, her her outlook on life, her convictions about these very things, had changed. She hardly knew why. No one had talked to her about this. She hadn't read a book, but she realized that partial birth abortion grieved God. She knew she could no longer live as a lesbian. Shortly thereafter, she went to work for Focus on the Family, an organization that stood for everything she had once despised. And in the years since, her life has changed in one radical fashion after another. She is a gospel witness. She devotes herself to caring for the needy and the dying. She is a senior writer for the global mission department of David C. Cook, the evangelical publishing house. Amy Tracy's life didn't change because... She had believed in Jesus for her salvation from sin and death and then several years later happened to read James 2 and realized that she ought to be adding some good works to her faith. Her life changed 
Her behavior changed. Her interests changed. Her causes changed naturally, relentlessly, simply because she was now a believer in Jesus. Once anyone realizes that Jesus is the Lord of all things and the Savior of sinners, all manner of things change and must change. Once one has encountered the love of God, one cannot live the same life one had lived before. Once one experiences deliverance from sin and death, one enters a different world where a new set of loves direct one's steps. Amy didn't perform what Christians call good works in the first place because she realized she was supposed to. Those good works were the effulgence. They were the overflow of her personal commitment to Christ and to the truth he had revealed to her about herself, about the word, uh, the world, about salvation, about the goodness of his will and heart and about the future. They were the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which always accompanies faith in Jesus Christ, which is, in fact, its presupposition. They were the inevitable result of the new birth, without which no one can believe in Jesus. Such changes we call sanctification, and they always accompany justification. They can be distinguished, these two things, justification and sanctification. They are different things, to be sure, the forgiveness of sins from the transformation of life, but they can never be separated. They're aspects of the same divine salvation that God grants to his chosen ones. That's why faith without works is dead. It can't really be faith at all if it doesn't produce a distinctly Christian 